Gilbert Stewart. Chances are most of you probably have not. But Gilbert Stewart was a painter in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. He's known for painting portraits of U.S. presidents. In fact, he painted uh, portraits of the first six presidents of the United States. He's best known for his portraits of George Washington. He painted an unfinished portrait titled the Athenaeum. And this unfinished portrait of George Washington is the image that you have on your $1 bills. And so, while we have not heard of Gilbert Scott, we know what George Washington looks like because of Gilbert Scott Stewart. We know what he looks like. A well-done portrait reveals different aspects of a person. In our text this morning, we're going to see a portrait of Jesus Christ. We're going to see a donkey that has no name, don't know much about the donkey, but yet he lifts up Jesus and bears Jesus into the city so we get a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And we'll see this in Mark chapter 11. So turn there with me, Mark chapter 11. We finished Galatians chapter 1 last week, so that's a natural stopping point. So we're going to take a couple weeks as we think about Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and then we'll get back into Galatians that uh, following week. But this morning we're in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you're physically able this morning, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 11, verse 1. The Bible says, When they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought that colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together this morning. Father, what a joy to gather together and celebrate the gospel. Lord, to celebrate the finished work of Christ the one who died for our sins, the one who rose from the dead, the one who saves and gives life and hope and peace and joy. We're, we're so grateful for Jesus and what he's done for us. We're so grateful, Father, for your love that would send your only son to come to this earth and die in our place. And I pray, Lord, that as we study this passage you would help us to see Jesus more clearly. May this portrait of Christ 
help us understand further who Jesus is. So that our hearts would be stirred up to worship and praise you. And would you, by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts. That we would see the truths of this passage and be quick to respond to those truths. And we'll thank you and praise you, Lord, for that grace. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I love the rhythm of the Christian calendar. I, I like knowing that every year, come springtime, we, we slow down a bit and we turn our focus uh, more in a more pointed fashion to the Passion Week. We think about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. We think about Palm Sunday, which is today, that first Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We think about that week he spent in Jerusalem. We think about Good Friday when he went to the cross and died for our sins. And we prepare our hearts for next Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we rejoice in the reality that Jesus Christ defeated death itself. He's alive today and he's mighty to save. I just love this time of year, don't you? This, the rhythm of the Christian calendar. And so thinking about that, as we think about Palm Sunday, I want us to think about the first Palm Sunday. And I want us to think about the portrait in this passage that is painted of Jesus. And what it reminds us of about him and what it teaches us about him. There are four aspects of this first Palm Sunday that teach us about Jesus. Here's aspect number one. Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy. Notice what it says there uh, in verse 1. They drew near to Jerusalem. That the they is the disciples and Jesus. And it says they came to Bethpage and Bethany. These were uh, villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They're at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, what's significant about this section of Scripture? I mean, why the, the detail about the, the cult of a donkey being brought to Jesus so Jesus could sit on that donkey? Well, this passage is a specific fulfillment of a specific prophecy written about Jesus over 500 years before this event actually happened. And we can read about that uh, prophecy in the book of Zechariah. So turn there with me, Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. I want to show you this verse because it is so striking. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Notice the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. But not just any donkey. Look what it says. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So over 500 years before the first Palm Sunday, the Lord said through the prophet Zechariah that one would come, sent from God as a king, a Messiah, and he would come into his city, Jerusalem, 
on a donkey's colt. And that's precisely what happens in Mark chapter 11. It is a specific fulfillment of prophecy. There's another one here, I believe, uh, that's alluded to in verse 11 when it says, uh, Mark 1, that Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve, we know. He comes back the next day and cleanses the temple. But the fact that Jesus came to his temple is the fulfillment of a prophecy found in Malachi chapter 3. Look there with me, last book of the Old Testament. I'm going to show you this specific prophecy about the coming of Christ. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This speaks of John the Baptist, who would come and point out that Jesus had arrived. And the Lord whom you seek, the Messiah God would send, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This this verse in Mark 11, when Jesus comes to the temple, is a partial fulfillment of that verse. When Jesus arrives on the scene in a very public way, he comes to the temple. He drives people out of the temple. He cleanses the temple. The Messiah has arrived. And I believe that Mark 11 is a partial fulfillment of that specific verse in Malachi. And so we see that there are specific prophecies fulfilled by the life and ministry of Christ. But they go far beyond the two that I just shared with you. In fact, when you look at the different prophecies that are fulfilled by Christ, it is breathtaking. In fact, I don't think we talk about fulfilled prophecies enough, because if you look at all the prophecies of Christ, how he fulfilled them, it is an open and shut case that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one sent from God. And there are all kinds of prophecies across the Old Testament. For example, there's a prophecy of where Jesus would be born. Over in Micah chapter 5, the Bible says that he, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is precisely where Jesus was born. We learn in Isaiah 7 something of the nature of his birth, that he would be born of a virgin, and he was born of the virgin Mary. We learn in the Old Testament that Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions. That speaks of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, that verse was written in Isaiah 53 over 700 years before Jesus actually died on the cross. And the Bible spoke of him being pierced before crucifixion was even a thing. It prophesied the Messiah would die and how he would die. He would be pierced with nails, dying for our sins. Also in Isaiah 53, the Bible speaks of the burial of Jesus, when it says he would be ba- with a rich man in his burial. And again, the Gospels record that a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus' dead body in his tomb. He was with a rich man in his death, a specific fulfillment of prophecy. And we could go on and on and on and on again. But what do these fulfilled prophecies teach us about Jesus? Here you go, ready? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The Old Testament prophesies, promises that God's going to send a king, a redeemer, a suffering servant. And Jesus was that one God promised to send. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So we are amazed by reading Mark 11 and we're reminded that in the, in the triumphal entry we see another fulfilled prophecy. But there's a second aspect to 
this passage in Mark 11, not only fulfilled prophecy, but exuberant praise. Exuberant praise. Look what it says back in Mark 11, verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, uh, coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now I want you to notice several things here. First of all, I want you to notice what the people are saying. They're saying, Hosanna. And Hosanna, Hosanna simply means, save now. Or, please save. Or, save us we pray. So by crying out Hosanna as Jesus comes riding by on a donkey's colt, they are recognizing something of the saving ministry of Christ. Now their idea of deliverance may have been a different idea than the reason Jesus actually came. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But they did recognize that when the Messiah shows up on the scene, he would come to save. He would come to deliver. And and they're crying out, Hosanna, save now, save us, we pray. And then they cry out in verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's a quote from Psalm 118. They are clearly uh, using that in a messianic sense because Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm saying this is the Messiah. And they begin by saying blessed. That word blessed is the word uh, eulogio. It's where we get the word eulogy from. You know what a eulogy is? When someone stands up at a funeral and they share a eulogy, they say good things about the person, right? And so blessed means to say good things about. So they're saying, they're saying, may good things be said about you. As you ride into Jerusalem, we are saying good things about the Messiah. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They are, they are referencing the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent by God. They're speaking well of him. So notice what they're saying. Hosanna, blessed. But then notice what the people are doing. Look what it says in verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road. Now, why are they doing that? Taking off their cloaks and laying them on the road so Jesus can ride over their cloaks. That's an unusual thing. This is probably a, an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12-13, through 13, when Jehu is anointed king of Israel. And when he's anointed king, the people put down their cloaks for the newly anointed king to walk over. It was a a symbol of submission. It was a symbol of recognizing royalty. This is the king. And so they're they're laying down their coats saying, the king has come to his city. We're recognizing his reign. They're laying down their coats. It's a very humble thing to do, right? To put your cloak, your overcoat in the way of a donkey to ride over? to be soiled, to be ruined, is is submitting to the king. But not only are they laying down their coats, they're laying down branches. Look what it says in verse 9. They spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Other gospels record these are palm branches. And these palm branches uh, were were symbols of nationalistic pride. It's a Jewish... National symbol. It'd be kind of like you and I waving an American flag at an event as a symbol of patriotism. Them waving their palm fronds was a, was a symbol of nationalistic fervor. 
there's some connections in Maccabees to the victories that God gave Israel over their enemies and, 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 and palms and that being a symbol of, of pride and victory. And so they're recognizing the king and they're, they're saying the king's come to save Israel. They're waving their palm fronds as an act of worship. So we see that they're saying some things about Jesus. We see what they're doing, laying down their cloaks and their palm fronds. But notice third their passion. Look what it says in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were... You ready, Baptists? You ready? Shouting. Shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna, save us, we pray. Blessed is the coming kingdom. They are crying out with exuberant praise. They are shouting. Now what does this teach us about Jesus? He's riding into Jerusalem. They're they're laying down their coats. They're crying out Hosanna. They're shouting with a loud voice. It reminds you, reminds me that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now Luke adds an interesting detail to this story in chapter 19 of his gospel. He writes in verse 37, As he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, here it is again, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your Disciples, hey, as a side note, often when someone gets exuberant about Jesus, religious folks get uncomfortable. Calm down. Calm down, right? You haven't been around church long enough to know you shouldn't do that. Calm down. Don't get all excited. What are you doing, right? Act like us. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're crying out with a loud voice. They're shouting, waving palm branches. And listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is saying that that God will make sure that his son gets glory. God's going to ensure that his son gets praised. Why? Jesus is worthy of worship. And God's going to ensure that the highest praise goes to Jesus. And so, are you exuberant about King Jesus on this Palm Sunday 2,000 years later? Are you excited about him? Or uh, When was the last time you were overcome with emotion? concerning Jesus. When was the last time you were exuberant about what Christ has done for you? When was the last time you gave God more than a golf clap? You know what a golf clap is? Polite. Notice as Jesus is walking in or riding into Jerusalem, they're not, they're not giving him a golf clap, are they? They're Shouting, Hosanna, worshiping the king. So we see in this 
passage. Fulfilled prophecy, and we see exuberant praise. But, but third, we see commanding presence. Commanding presence. We see it in two verses. Look what it says in Mark 11, verse 2. He tells his disciples to go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt. Now look at this next phrase. Interesting detail. On which no one has ever sat. Now that's interesting. Why is Jesus arranging sovereignly for a donkey's colt to be brought to him that's never been ridden by a person? What's the big deal? Why that detail? Well, I believe R. Kent Hughes gets to it when he writes this. Jesus chose a colt upon which no one had ever ridden. This was because in biblical culture and ancient culture in general, an animal devoted to a sacred task must be one that had not been put to ordinary use. The reason he wanted a donkey that had never been ridden is because this donkey had a sacred task. He was going to lift up the Messiah and bear him into the holy city. And because Jesus has commanding presence, he called for that donkey. But there's another detail about his commanding presence found in verse 11. Look what it says in Mark 11, verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. When he arrives, he, he goes into the temple later in the day, and he looks around. James Edwards, the New Testament scholar, calls this a commanding survey. It's more than a glance. The word means Careful inspection. So can you imagine that scene? Jesus comes to his temple. And he just looks around. He's surveying. He saw the area where the money changers set up. And he knew the next day as pilgrims came to worship at the temple that they would be taken advantage of by these money changers, charged exorbitant interest to change their money. He saw maybe against the other wall where the, the folks would set up, they were selling animals for sacrifice and selling them at, at, at really high prices. He knew people would be taken advantage of. Instead of the temple being a house of prayer for all the peoples, it was a place that had become a den of thieves, a place of deception. A place where God was not worshipped. And he looks around. Can you imagine the intensity of that gaze? The Lord of the temple had arrived at his temple. And he's looking around. And I believe it's based upon that gaze that we see the next passage. He comes back the next day and what did he do? He drives out the money changers, right? He's turning over tables. He's, he's driving out the, the deceitful ones saying this is a house of prayer. So here in Mark 11, we see his commanding presence. He rides a donkey no one's ever ridden. And he goes in the temple and looks around, all around, to take survey of that scene. So what do we learn from this commanding presence? We learn or are reminded of the fact that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's why he got a... a a donkey that's never been used for ordinary purposes. That's why he surveys the temple and then drives people out of the temple. He's Lord. 
He's boss. He's master. He calls the shots. Let me ask you a question. Is he Lord of every area of your life? He's a savior of commanding presence. Is he your Lord? Have you submitted fully to him? Can you imagine if his intense gaze fell upon your heart today? What would he see? There's an interesting passage over in Luke. After Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he was taken into the house of Caiaphas. and They're trying to find him guilty of blasphemy so they could put him to death. The Bible records that Peter was in that courtyard right outside of Caiaphas' house. I've actually been to that spot, Claire and I, with some folks from this church have actually been there. And the Bible records in the courtyard, Peter denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. And Luke tells us that after the third denial, the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter meet. Can you imagine Peter looking to the eyes of Jesus after he denied him three times? Can you imagine the intensity of that gaze? Can I tell you this? Jesus is Lord. And he's gazing at all of our hearts today. Is he Lord of every area of your life? We're reminded in in this chapter in Mark that he's a Messiah of commanding presence. But there's a fourth aspect of this passage I want you to see. Fulfilled prophecy, exuberant praise, commanding presence, and then preeminent purpose. Look what the Bible says in verse 10. The people are crying out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, that's a quote from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. They're recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. And they recognize he's coming to to usher in a kingdom. They get that. Blessed is his kingdom. He's coming to rule and reign over, but they, they probably, for the most part, had the wrong idea of the kind of kingdom Jesus came to usher in. You see, in this first century, people were looking for a nationalistic Messiah. One who would come and rally the troops and lead a military overthrow of Roman rule and oppression. They were looking for someone to command the people to lead them to victory and freedom and national prominence. So when they thought Messiah, they thought deliverer from Rome. And here he is. He's come to usher in his kingdom. Israel will be great again. That was what they were thinking, but they had it wrong when it came to the type of kingdom Jesus came to usher in. You see, instead of conquering through military might and political clout, Jesus came and would conquer through weakness. Think about that. He didn't lead an army. In fact, he told the disciples, put away your swords. This is not a a military conflict. Sure, he came to conquer. He came to usher in a kingdom, but he came to do it through weakness. 
How did he bring about the kingdom? He laid down his life. He died a cruel death between two criminals. And that's how he made the kingdom of God available to sinners like me. He conquered through weakness. And frankly, that's why a lot of people struggle with the gospel. Over in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Bible says, The word of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. How can a crucified man be a king? How can a crucified man be victorious? He died between two thieves. But 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. Because we understand that when Jesus laid down his life, he defeated sin. So we could be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. And so by laying down his life, Jesus conquered and he ushered in not a political kingdom, not a a kingdom for, for the Jews. He came to usher in a spiritual kingdom that is for everyone who will bow their knee to Jesus. The people in the first century on this first Palm Sunday thought he was going to overthrow Roman rule and oppression, but he came to overthrow sin and death. To make the kingdom of God available to you and to me. There's an interesting contrast in Zechariah chapter 9. We read a verse from Zechariah 9. We talked about the prophecy of the Messiah coming on a cult into Jerusalem. But the first part of that chapter is a a passage about another king. Some scholars believe it's a reference to Alexander the Great, who had conquered most of the known world before the time of Jesus. He actually came against Jerusalem, and, and uh, historians record that, that Jerusalem was rescued from Alexander's uh, overthrowing them completely. And, and scholars believe that that first part of Zechariah 9 is about Alexander. Then there's a contrast with Jesus. A, a conquering military king and a humble king who would lay down his life to win. You see, Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem on a war horse like Alexander. He came to Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. He didn't come to destroy political enemies. He came to lay down his own life. He didn't come to usher in some temporary political kingdom. He came to usher in a spiritual permanent kingdom. In other words, he came to die and to rise again so you and I could be saved and be a part of the ever-expanding kingdom of God. Our vision as a church is to expand God's kingdom across the street and around the world. Here's what we mean by that. We want to share the good news so people can be saved and be a part of that kingdom. As more people get saved, the kingdom gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's invisible right now. You can't see it. It takes place in the hearts of men, right? But it's real and it's growing as people get saved. And as more and more people get saved, guess who gets more glory? King Jesus. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus came to usher in. So even while the people are crying out for this kingdom, they probably had it a little wrong as to the nature of the kingdom. Now I thought this was interesting. Interesting anecdote from Warren Wiersbe. 
Jesus is riding into Jerusalem in a triumphal manner. And Wearsby points out the fact that a Roman general had to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers to merit a triumphal entry. In other words, you couldn't have a big victory parade until you killed at least 5,000 enemies of Rome. Only way you could get a parade. So why does Jesus get a parade? Why does he ride in in a triumphal manner? Wearsby points out that just a few weeks after this event, 5,000 plus would be saved in Jerusalem. Different kind of kingdom, right? And so he has a triumphal entry in, in anticipation of those who would not be destroyed by the sword, but saved by the cross. And so, what do we learn from this preeminent purpose? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We see in Mark 11, fulfilled prophecy, and it shows us this portrait of Jesus as the Messiah. We see exuberant praise, which shows us this portrait of him as as worthy of worship. We see the commanding presence which shows us that Jesus is Lord and we see preeminent purpose which reminds us that Jesus saves sinners. So the first Palm Sunday, here's what I want you to walk away with, was a display of the majesty and mission of Jesus. That's what it's all about. Now, over 2,000 years later, on this Palm Sunday, you and I can rejoice in His majesty and recognize and participate in his mission. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. Do you recognize who Jesus Christ is? He's Lord. And he saves. The question for you this morning is, has he saved you? Has he saved you? You know, you may have heard sermons about Palm Sunday before. You may have heard a lot of Easter sermons as well. About the Passion Week, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. But can I tell you this? When you actually know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Easter takes on an entirely different significance for your life. I'm telling you, if you've never experienced Easter as a born-again believer, you're missing it. Because there's nothing like it when you recognize Jesus came and he died and he rose so you could have eternal and abundant life. It'll change your perspective when you know the one who came for us.